I'll turn over to Luke today. Luke 16, 19 through 31. You may have noticed by now that if I go away to Presbytery, I usually like to do something different than our normal series when I get back. Um, and this one, I actually preached in Montrose a few months ago when I was visiting there, and I wanted to share it with you, and I was saving it for when I went away to Presbytery. So here we are. Like I told them, you know, I, I wanted to preach on something from about the sufficiency of Scripture, and this is one of the most powerful passages about that. And then I realized... I have to talk about money and hell. <laughs> in that case, I was a guest preacher. It was a lot of fun. We had a good time. So it's a good one. But uh, this is the parable of, of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, let's pray and then we'll get into the word. Father, as we open up and read the words of your dear son, uh, may we be listeners. Let us not be those who hear without hearing or see without seeing. Uh, for if we do not listen to Jesus... Where else can we go? For he has the words of life. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Luke sixteen nineteen through 31. There was a rich man who has, was clothed in purple and fly, fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. As you know, I worked for Ace Hardware for a couple years. Uh, when it was my last semester of seminary, we were had Cohen, Kelly was pregnant with Cohen, and I decided I should start making a little money here as we transitioned from 
one phase of life to the next. So I worked for Ace Hardware. I felt like I was getting pretty good at the forklift to the point where like you're lazy and you don't want to get off the forklift. Like even a single two by four, you try to scoop it up with the forklift and put it where it belongs. One day we were unloading windows from a truck and as I had the windows, the window on the forks up against the rack and I was driving slowly into the lumber bay and, and uh, this older man, Les, was walking beside me. He said, slow down. Of course, I thought I was going slow enough, so I didn't really listen. And sure enough, as I started to slow to make the turn, the window just started to tip and crashed off the front of the, the forks. And uh, Les just looked at me with a smug sort of look on his face like, I told you so. <laughs> uh, that is kind of the every man doing what is right in his own eyes, right? I was doing what was right in my own eyes. I wasn't listening to less the man of experience, the man who knew the truth that I was going too fast. I was doing what was right in my own eyes. Uh, this is the issue that's brought to our attention in this text in a very pointed way, and that is the insufficiency of self-determined truth or self-revelation and the absolute sufficiency and necessity of revealed truth, that is, the scriptures. And we do, don't we? We write our own little books of kind of rights and wrongs, our self-congratulatory books of right and wrong. And we ignore the book God has given to us, which does contain everything we need to believe about God and, and the duties that he's given to us. The stakes cannot get any higher than heaven and hell, which is the picture we see in this text. The term self-sufficiency of scripture may sound like a sort of highfalutin uh, theological term, but it's not hyperbole to say the sufficiency of scripture is the difference between heaven and hell. For the purposes of our time together, I want to look at at the end of the passage and consider that where he says, if he doesn't listen to Moses and the prophets, he will not listen to someone who's raised from the dead. But in order to kind of get there, we have to look at where we've been or where Luke has been, especially since we have not been going through Luke. Context is always important, but in the case of this parable in particular, the context, you can't interpret this parable without the context. Um, So... This parable of the rich man and Lazarus is the last in a series of parables that Jesus tells that I started to call the ratchet strap parables. Ratchet straps are those little straps with the cranks on them that nobody seems to know how to use. Um, I know how I can ten ten bucks. I'll train you in the parking lot afterward. But they have that little ratcheting system. And, and every time you open the lever, it gets tighter and tighter on the load. In this series of parables, each time Jesus tells a new story, the strap gets tighter. He cranks the strap a little tighter on the Pharisees. We see why he's speaking these parables back, and you'll want to turn there back in Luke 15, in verses 1 and 2. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors 
and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is the whole context for all the series of parables that is to come. And the question that's being asked here by the Pharisees is, Why on earth would Jesus eat with sinners? Why would he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why would he eat and spend time with the lowly and the cursed and the sinful people? And this series of parables is Jesus' sort of rebuttal to that question. He begins with the parable of the lost sheep in chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, uh, where we're familiar with Jesus says the shepherd would go after one sheep. He has 99 sheep. He would go after the one sheep. And he says at the end of that parable that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner than 99 righteous. One sinner saved. So you see, he's, he's re- re- responding to the question, why do you spend time with these lowly sinners? And he's saying, I'm spending time with them to retrieve the lost sheep, to bring them back into the fold. The next parable is uh, 15, 8 through 10, the lost coin. Um, the woman has 10 coins. She loses one. Will she not search her house? And when she finds it, will she not rejoice? See, here Jesus is even claiming in this parable both that the Pharisees do not love the lost sheep of Israel like he does and that he is the salvation. By spending time with them, he is salvation. Now, the next parable is one that we're very familiar with, the prodigal son, or maybe better, the two sons, um, which is in fifteen eleven through 32. And again, would not the father... Welcome in the wayward son. And this parable really begins to tighten the strap because actually we think of the point of the prodigal son as the prodigal son. But in responding to the Pharisees, the point is actually about the Pharisees. The whining older brother is the Pharisees. Jesus is cranking the strap on them. And here we start to see the picture start to emerge that the sinners repent and receive forgiveness while the quote-unquote righteous receive scorn, they receive reprimand. Now, at this point, you can start to feel the simmering anger of the Pharisees begin to boil. Uh, The next parable is one that we're less familiar with, but it's actually very interesting. Jesus tells this parable that really packs a punch a manager of a rich man's estate is about to be fired for dishonesty. And he said, this is funny. What can I do for myself? I am too weak to shovel and too embarrassed to beg. <laughs> At least he has an honest self-analysis. Uh, but here his response is to go to the debtors of his master while he still has some uh, authority with them and says, basically, rewrite your invoice. You owe less. And his his strategy there is he'll endear himself to those people so that when he is out on the streets, he can go to their homes and they'll welcome him into their homes. And Jesus says to them, to the Pharisees at this point, make friends for yourselves in verse nine make of chapter 16, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, 
they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Isn't that, you start to see what he's saying? Where are the eternal dwellings of those who uh, make friends by unrighteous wealth? He's saying, make friends with those people who are going to go to hell. So you can go to them to their eternal dwelling. So there, the, the strap is getting tight. Now you know when you're strapping down a load, you have to kind of give it a test. Listen to the twang. If you're a man, the laws of nature require you to say, that's not going anywhere. So this is what Jesus does next. He leaves the parables for a moment and he speaks directly. And he says, look, if you have not been faithful in little, like in this example, stewarding God's finances, how can you be expected to be faithful in much? He says, you cannot serve both God and money. And then it says, this is in 16, 14 through 18, he says that the, the Pharisees loved money and they ridiculed him for his teaching. And Jesus says, and this, this line is so important in verse 15 for understanding our parable. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Now he goes on in 16 through, or 19 through 31. This is kind of the final crank. After you test the strap, you've got to really just give it one more wrench. In this parable, there are the two men, the rich man clothed in purple. It says he wore fine silk undergarments. He was rich enough to wear silk undies. He ate sumptuously every day. It says this is the blessed man. Right? By all accounts, this is the blessed man. And then there's the poor man. Jesus gives him a name, Lazarus. And this really is, by human standards, the cursed man. Especially in the Jewish society. If any Jew were to touch this man, they would be immediately unclean. He was lame. He was covered all over with sores. He laid on the ground where dogs licked him. This was the unclean, cursed man. And this really is the proper order of things, isn't it, right? The Pharisees were wealthy and esteemed by God, blessed of God, so they should be at the table. And Lazarus was the curse of God, so he should be on the ground. So think back to 15, 1 and 2. The sinners and the tax collectors were the filthy, the cursed, the refuse. How could Jesus spend time on the ground with those who were licked by dogs, the accursed ones. How could he eat with them? Now, both men die. Lazarus is whisked away by the angels to the bosom of the father Abraham, which is a traditional way of speaking of heaven. And though he was lowly on earth, he has now been given the highest position of status. You think for a Jew at that time, who better to be at the right hand of than Abraham himself? He was at the bosom of Abraham, the highest status in glory. The rich man finds himself in, the, himself in the flame of Hades, and now he has become the beggar. 
He, he's begging. This is just <laughs> astonishing. Will the cursed Lazarus put his dirty finger in some water and put it in my mouth? Right? He is the beggar at this point. The roles have been reversed. You can imagine just how repulsed the Pharisees, who are so concerned with being ceremonially clean, imagine the sinners and tax collectors, that one day they would be begging them to put their finger in water and dip it on their tongue. You see how the clean and the unclean have been reversed, the rich and poor have been reversed, the blessed and the cursed have been reversed. And how much did the esteem of men help the rich man in death? I mean, was God impressed by how wealthy he was, by his status, by his purple garments? The begging continues. He says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So you see the irony in this. You think of the context of the audience. The Pharisees challenging Jesus, why do you spend time with these dirty people? And it, his response is almost kind of like, you know, when, when in, in a high school situation, when the nerdy kid's being picked on by the athletes, and you think, man, someday you're going to be sweeping the floors of that little guy's business. <laughs> the roles are going to be reversed. Essentially, he's saying, mock now, but one day you'll be begging that poor sinner to dip his finger in water and relieve your torment. Now, here, the question is, will the dead be sent back? And, of course, no. And will it do any good if they're sent back? The answer is no. And this is the apex of the parable here in in 29 through 31. But if Abraham said... But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So what should we glean from this story? I mean, should we take from the story that uh, it's inherently wicked to be rich? I mean, no, uh, Abraham would be in the flames of Hades, right? <laughs> uber rich. Abraham was uber rich. Uh, should we take from this story that it's inherently good to be poor? I mean, the Bible commends industrious wisdom and hard work and condemns laziness. Uh, Should we formulate from this passage detailed doctrines about heaven and hell? Uh, Probably not. The purpose of this story is a parable. The purpose of parables is to communicate a truth. So we may be able to glean some assumptions from Jesus about the existence of hell or something like that. But we shouldn't go to great detail formulating detailed doctrines on that. Uh, The point of this parable is a two-sided truth. On the one side, you have this group of people who look really good before men, but they don't listen to Jesus. And you have another group that looks terrible before men, and they do 
Listen to Jesus. I want to spend a little time thinking about those two sides of the coin. On the one hand, how do we seek to justify ourselves before men, to look good before men? And on the other side, as we seek to listen to the word of God, what are some things that stand in for us as substitutes for the word of God? I have five ways that we justify ourselves before men. Again, think back to Luke 16, 15. You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We have to be careful with these passages about the Pharisees because we like to Pharisee the Pharisees. We like to look at the Pharisees and say, I praise God that I'm not like that man. Jonathan Edwards says, Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall not escape it. So what are the some of the ways that we are in danger of flattering ourselves so that we become self-justified? What are those things which are exalted among men but an abomination in the sight of God? The first obvious one from this passage is money. Jesus says in, in verse 13, You cannot serve both God and money. And you might think, I know I can't serve it because I don't have any. But I remind you as Americans that though some of us have struggles getting by more than others, the poorest among us is still wealthier than the largest percentage of the world. But money communicates. We see a nice car, a nice home, and we, we place value on that. We think that person has esteem. That person's done something for himself. He's blessed of God. And if we're honest, we want a piece of that for ourselves. For people to see our car or our clothes and kind of size us up and immediately think well of us. Or we want just a little more of that comfort and security money can provide. We elevate it, we set it up as an idol for ourselves, and we begin to serve it. Our education, our job, our side hustles, our uh, hobnobbing and schmoozing. Our networking, it all can become a way to try to self-justify ourselves, to make ourselves look good before men. Conversely, the second way we can self-justify ourselves is the opposite, no money. Sometimes we kind of congratulate ourselves for our poverty. Like we find some identity in the fact that we drive cars from the 90s. People will really see how dedicated I am when they see how little I have. It's like the Pharisees, again, on the flip side, who, who show off how miserable they are when they're fasting. We justify ourselves before men. The third way we can justify ourselves before men is status. Uh, climbing the social ladder is probably more on our minds than we want to admit. I mean, it's fun. If you ask somebody how a family member is doing, say like a child, how's your kid doing? They say, oh, really good. They're, they're married, they have two kids, a good job, opportunity for advancement, they've just bought a house, That uh, they're doing very well. If you press them and ask, how are they doing spiritually? Oh, well, yeah, they haven't been going to church and they're questioning the value of the Bible. So why is it that we define... <laughs> 
well-being first by the American dream and only secondarily spiritually? Could it be that we're more interested in looking good before men than right before God? The fourth way we can self-justify ourselves is family. Remember John baptizing in the Jordan. Some were presuming salvation by DNA. We have, fa- we have Father Abraham as our father. We're okay. And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And we see how the presumption works out for our rich man. He raises his eyes from the flames of Hades and says, Father Abraham. Really? You're saying Father Abraham still in this current position? Of course I'm in. What do you think? You know, I'm, I'm from a long line of Dutch Calvinists. Right? I was talking to Pastor Stephen, who's in Michigan now. And he said, you know, you're, you're all familiar with the Christian Reformed Church. And up there, there's one on every corner. He said, you know, one of the problems I'm seeing is that essentially people have enough covenant theology to be dangerous. To, to where they're presuming, based on their infant baptism, a misunderstanding of it, that they're good. That we, we don't have to live it out. We're just, we're good. In some circles, your last name may help you look good before men. But you'll stand before God alone. The fifth way we can self-justify ourselves is work. Uh, I would guess the rich man did some great works in his time, perhaps philanthropic works. Maybe the folks in his local synagogue knew Rich Lazarus is the man to go to to get things done. Right? I mean, do you ever work hard, work a long time, work for something for the Lord or for your fellow man, and you pour yourself into it with complete selflessness, and then you start to feel a little anger welling up within yourself? and and you start to think, no one's noticing. I'm not being appreciated. How often is our work done for the eyes of man more than for God, for self-justification? So we carry all these sins, these self-justifiers in our hearts. And I bring them up not to discourage you or to say, like, shape up and, and get rid of all your stuff and become a poor person. I'm not saying shape up or or you're going to find yourself in hell. Um, Although I think preachers let us off the hook too quickly sometimes. Perhaps you will. Just consider that. Search out your own heart. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Are you justifying yourself before men? I bring this to our attention to warn us again, not to Pharisee the Pharisees. When we read a story like this, we always put ourselves in the position of Lazarus rather than the position of the Pharisees. But by birth, as sons and daughters of of fallen Adam and Eve, we are born with Pharisaic hearts. The the name Lazarus means God helps. God helps. That's what we need if we're going to be carried to the bosom of Abraham. God helps. 
Will we see our Pharisaism for what it is and bring those sins to Jesus? I mean, is Pharisaism like the unforgivable sin? We could probably ask Nicodemus when we get to heaven. Now I want us to look at the other side of the coin. I have four substitutes that tend to replace the sufficiency of Scripture in our lives. The cure for self-justification is, is to lay aside our own standards of truth and our own definitions of right and wrong. We must turn away from, from self-congratulation and toward revelation. Or to put it in more f- familiar terms, we must repent and believe God. That's the cure for self-justification. We recall Mar- Martha and Mary Jesus went to their home. Martha was slaving in the way of, in, in the kitchen, preparing food for guests, which is a noble, worthy service for her Lord. Meanwhile, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and just listening. When Mar- Martha expresses her, her exasperation. How does Jesus reply? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What's the difference between the sinners and the tax collectors? These sinners that Jesus was spending time with and the Pharisees, on the other hand. What's the difference between these two groups? Is it their need for Jesus? Of course not. We all need Jesus. Every kind of sinner needs Jesus. But perhaps it's their perceived need for Jesus. The Pharisees had abundance. They had what they thought of as righteousness. They thought they were blessed and not cursed. And yet this group hated and ridiculed Jesus. The sinners and tax collectors, on the other hand, they knew that they were filthy. They knew they were despised among men. And so they came to Jesus. They listened to Jesus. So the real difference is that the sinners and tax collectors had the good portion, which would not be taken away from them. They came to listen to revelation, to the revelation, to Jesus. They laid their filth at his feet and listened. And look again back at 27. It says, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear then. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And we think that sometimes, don't we? Like, if I had just a special sign from the Lord, then I'd really believe. Show me something spectacular, which atheists often claim, but we realize, no, you won't believe. Remember the Pharisees, when Jesus raised the other Lazarus from the dead, they didn't say, oh, wow, he raised somebody from the dead. They said, we got to kill that guy. The hard heart of man. Nothing is sufficient to save the hard heart of man except the word and the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So these four substitutes, things that replace the word in our lives, um, 
The first one is signs and wonders. Even though it's clear as day, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I, I just find it hard to believe that I wouldn't believe that. If somebody, I knew they came back from the dead and they were preaching to me, of course I'd believe them. It's hard to believe I wouldn't. The reason we have such a hard time believing that we wouldn't be convinced is we think we are naturally capable of making the right decision. I can assemble the evidence. I can be rational. I can come up with the right answer if I just have the right data. But that idea fails to account for the blindness and rebellion in men's hearts. In seeing, we do not see, and in hearing, we do not hear. So the most magnificent sign or wonder is not sufficient to save us. The second substitute for the revelation of God is private revelation. Notice Abraham doesn't say, they still have the the still small voice. Let them listen to it. He says they have Moses and the prophets. That's, That's enough said about that one. General revelation is the third. This is the kind of, I find God in a fishing boat, not in a pew mentality. Which, as a lover of fishing boats, I can sympathize. I love to to see God's handiwork in nature. Who among us doesn't see the majesty and beauty of creation and and hear the heavens declaring the glory of God? But even Paul says those people who, who don't see it in creation are suppressing the truth within themselves. But is that sufficient to save? Is general revelation, the revelation of God in creation, enough to save? Is creation sufficient to teach us everything we need to know about God and the duties he requires of us? Again, Abraham doesn't say they have the beauty of creation all around them. Let them listen to that. He says they have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. The fourth and final substitute is cultural revelation. This is something I'm stealing from Vodi Bakum. He kind of has coined this phrase, ethnic Gnosticism, which is a good example of it. That is to say, if you're, unless you're a particular person who identifies with a particular ethnicity, you don't have the higher knowledge required to comment on race, say. It doesn't have to be about, about race. We can do this with many things, uh, many conversations. For example, you can't speak on creation unless you've read these books. You can't speak on um, you know, race or sociology unless you've read these sociology textbooks. So there's a sort of cultural revelation out there as well that we think we have to adhere to. But the Bible is sufficient to speak on all things pertaining to life and godliness. So the question here is, are we lifting ourselves up? Are we justifying ourselves before men? Doing that which is right in our own eyes. Are we taking our poverty and coming to the feet of Jesus and listening to him? This parable, I could have named this sermon the reversal. That's really what it is here. Those who assume blessedness are cursed. And those who know their cursedness and come to Jesus are blessed. 
I'm sure some of you know Martin Luther's last words. We are all beggars. It is true. We are all beggars. It is true. The question is, when will we understand our poverty? At some point, we're going to understand our poverty. When will we understand our poverty? I should have listened to my friend less. It was too late. Don't let it be too late. Listen to the word of Christ. Amen.